The Most Holy Virgin, Part 11, Mary's Entrance into the Temple and Her Offering. Zachary and the other men had already gone to the temple. Now Mary was led thither by the women and the virgins. Anne and her elder daughter, Mary Helly, with the little daughter of the latter, Mary Cleophas, walked first. Then came Mary in her second suit, the sky-blue dress and mantle, her neck and arms adorned with garlands, and the flower-wreathed candlestick in her hand. On either side walked three little maidens with similarly trimmed candlesticks. They were dressed in white, embroidered with gold, and wore bluish mantles. They were quite covered with garlands, even their arms were twined with flowers. Then followed the other virgins and little girls, about twenty in number, all dressed beautifully, but somewhat differently, though all wore mantles. Then came the elderly females. They could not proceed straight to the temple from this point. They had to take a circuitous route of nearly half an hour. They passed through some streets and before Veronica's house. From many of the dwellings, the procession was saluted, the spectators gazing in wonder at the child and her beautiful train of attendants. There was something very extraordinary in Mary's appearance. At the temple, men were busy opening a large and wonderfully beautiful gate, upon which were carved grapevines, ears of wheat, and heads of various kinds. It was the Golden Gate. The priests led the Holy Virgin up numerous steps to this gate. Joachim and Zachary met them at the gate, which opened into a long archway, and led them through several passages into a hall. Here Mary was again questioned by the priests, after which she was clothed in the third holiday suit, the violet-blue, embroidered one. And now Joachim went with the priests to offer sacrifice. He took fire from a certain place and stood between two priests at the altar. The approach to the altar from these three sides was free, but not so on the fourth. At the four corners of the altar stood small copper pillars and a pipe of the same metal, shaped like a large inverted funnel, which ended in a spiral tube. By this arrangement, the smoke from the burning sacrifice rose and escaped over the head of the priest. On three sides of the altar, a shelf could be drawn out to receive what was to be laid on the middle of it, since to reach that far would be impossible. When the sacrifice was kindled, Mary went with the women and children to her place of prayer in the women's porch where she and her young companions stood in the front row. The porch was separated from the court of the altar of burnt offerings by a wall, in which was a gate with a grating above. Through this gate, Joachim entered the subterranean passage when, upon the day of Mary's Immaculate Conception, he met Anne under the golden gate. The women back in the court could see the altar better when mounted on steps raised in tears. In another court was standing a crowd of white-robed boys belonging to the temple, playing upon flutes and harps. After the sacrifice, a portable altar was set up under the arch gateway, and before it were placed a couple of steps, Zachary and Joachim, with some priests and two Levites, entered from the court of the altar of burnt offerings, carrying rolls and writing materials, while Anne led Mary to the steps before the altar. Mary knelt upon the steps, while Joachim and Anne, laying their hands on her head, uttered some words bearing reference to the offering of their child, 
which words were written down by the two Levites. Then one of the priests cut a lock of hair from the child's head and cast it upon a pan of live coals, after which he threw around her a brown veil. During this ceremony, the girls sang 44, the priests 49, and the boys played on their musical instruments. And now the priests led the Holy Virgin up a long flight of steps in the wall that separated the sanctuary from the rest of the temple. They stood her in something like a niche, from which she could see into the temple were arranged numbers of men who seemed to be consecrated to its service. Two priests stood at Mary's side, and several others on the steps praying and reading aloud from rolls. Behind Mary and on the other side of the wall, a priest was standing at the altar of incense, only half of his person visible from the point at which Mary and her attendants were placed. Through an opening contrived for the purpose, one could cast incense upon the altar without entering the court. The priest now at the incense altar was a holy man. While he offered sacrifice and the cloud of incense arose around Mary, I saw a vision, which grew in magnitude until at last it filled the whole temple and obscured it. I saw above the heart of Mary the glory and the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. At first it looked exactly like the Ark of the Covenant, and lastly like the temple itself. Out of the mystery, and before Mary's breast, arose a chalice similar to that of the Last Supper. Above it, and just in front of her mouth, appeared bread marked with the cross. Beams of light radiated around her, and in them shone her various types and symbols. The mysterious pictures of the Litany of Loretto, and the other names and titles of Mary, I saw ranged up the whole flight of steps and around her. From her shoulders, right and left, stretched an olive and a cedar branch crosswise, above an elegant palm tree with a small tuft of leaves that stood directly behind her. In the intervening spaces of this verdant cross appeared all the instruments of Christ's passion. Over the vision hovered the Holy Spirit, a figure winged with glory, an appearance more human than dove-like. The heavens opened above Mary, and the central point of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, floated over her with all the gardens, the palaces, and the dwellings of the future saints. Angels and myriads hovered around, and the glory that encircled her was full of angelic faces. Ah, who can express it? Infinite variety, unceasing change, all these pictures following quickly upon, and, as it were, growing out of one another. Innumerable points of this vision I have forgotten. All the splendor and magnificence of the temple, the richly ornamented wall before which Mary was standing, all grew dark and somber. The whole temple disappeared, for Mary and her glory alone was visible. And this vision, symbolical of Mary's spiritual signification, I saw her not as a child, but full-grown. She hovered in the air, and through and through the vision, I still saw the priests, the incense offering, and everything else. Then the priest at the altar appeared to prophesy, and to call upon the people to thank God and to pray, for that great things were to come upon the child. The crowd in the temple, greatly awed, although they had not seen the vision that I saw, maintained a solemn stillness. The vision faded away just as gradually as it had unfolded. 
At last, the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant shone again in its glory over her heart, and the child once more stood there alone in her rich attire. Then the priests, among whom Zachary was one of those standing on the lower steps, led Mary down by the hand. One of them took the light from her and the little garlands off her arms and handed them to the other girls. Mary was then led through a door into another hall where six other temple virgins, their mistress Noemi, who was a sister of Lazarus's mother Anna, and another female met them and scattered flowers before her. To them the priest delivered the child. When the singing was ended, Mary took leave of her parents. Joachim was especially affected. He took the little child up in his arms, pressed her to his heart, and said, weeping, Remember my soul before God. Mary now accompanied the women and children belonging to the temple, to their dwelling on the north side, from which passages and winding stairs led up to little chambers adjoining the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies, where they went to pray. The others, that is, Mary's relatives and friends, returned to the apartments near the entrance and took her past with the priests, the women apart. They were still in the temple, some devout adorers. Many had followed the procession to the entrance. There were numbers among those present who knew that Mary was a child of promise in her family. I remember, though not distinctly, that Anne had dropped some such expressions to her friends as, now does the vessel of the promise enter the temple. Now is the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. It was by a special manifestation of the divine will that this feast was so solemnly and magnificently celebrated. Joachim and Anne were indeed wealthy, but they lived very frugally. They gave all to the temple and to the poor. I do not now remember how long it was that Anne took for herself nothing but cold victuals, but she treated her domestics generously and provided them with dowries. I think she and Joachim returned that same day with their whole company to Bethoron. I saw also a feast among the temple children. They had a meal at which Mary had to question first the mistresses and then the maidens separately as to whether they were willing to have her among them. This was the custom. Then the girls had a dance among themselves. They stood two and two opposite one another and danced, changed places across, and formed figures in and out. There was no leaping, but certain swaying movements of the whole person, which seemed somewhat expressive of the Jewish character. Some of the girls accompanied the dance with the music of flutes, triangles, chimes, and an instrument they gave forth sounds at once strange and agreeable. It consisted of a little box with oblique sides, over which were stretched strings which the players touched with their fingers. The center of the box contained bellows, out of which projected several pipes, some crooked, others straight. The performer pressed sometimes here, sometimes there, on the center of the bellows, which mingled its sounds with those of the strings. The instrument was rested either upon the knee of the performer or upon a stool under which the knee was placed. In the evening, Noemi took Mary to her cell, from which she could see down into the temple. Here Mary mentioned to Noemi, Noemi her desire to get up more frequently in the night to pray. But Noemi refused her request for the present. 
The women belonging to the temple wore white robes, long and wide, girdled at the waist. Their flowing sleeves were turned up when at work. Far back in the temple were numerous chambers built in the wall and connected with the dwellings of the women. Mary's cell was one of the most distant, one nearest the Holy of Holies. From the passage that led to it, one raised a curtain and stepped into an apartment, a sort of antechamber, separated from the cell by a light, semicircular, movable screen. Here in the corners, right and left, were shelves for clothing and other things. Opposite the door in the screen that led into the cell was an opening hung with gauze and tapestry, and looking down into the temple. It was rather high in the wall. One had to mount upon steps to reach it. On the left of the cell lay a cover rolled into a bundle, which Mary unrolled at night for a couch. A branched lamp stood in a niche of the wall. I saw the holy child standing on a stool near it and praying out of a roll with red knobs on the rod. It was indeed a touching sight. The child wore a little coarsely woven striped dress, blue and white, with yellow flowers. A small round table like a stool stood in the room and on it I saw Anna setting a dish of fruit the size of beans and a little jug. The child was skillful far beyond her years. She could already work on little white cloths for the service of the temple. The wall of her cell was inlaid with colored triangular stones. I often saw the child Mary seized with holy longing for the Messiah, and saying to Anna, Oh, will the promised child be born soon? Oh, if I could only see that child! Oh, if only I am living when he is born. And Anna would give this reply. Think how old I am, and how long I have waited for that child. And you, you are still so young. And Mary would shed tears of longing for the promised Savior. The maidens reared in the temple, under the care of the matrons, occupied themselves with embroidery, with all kinds of ornamental work, with cleansing the priestly garments and the vessels belonging to the temple. From their cells they could see into the temple, pray, and meditate. They were, by the fact of their parents having placed them there, entirely dedicated to the Lord. Upon reaching a certain age they were given in marriage, for there was among the more enlightened Israelites the pious, though secret hope, that from such a virgin dedicated to God the Messiah would be born. I never saw that Herod built the temple anew. Under him there were indeed many changes made in it. But at the time of Mary's entrance, eleven years before the birth of Christ, the temple itself had not been touched. The additions and changes had been made as heretofore on the outbuildings alone. Part 12. A Glance at the Obduracy of the Pharisees How obdurate and obstinate the priests and the Pharisees of the temple were, may be discovered from the small esteem in which they held the distinctions bestowed upon the Holy Family. First, Joachim's offering was rejected, but after some months both his own and his wife's were, by God's command, received. Joachim was admitted even into the presence of the Holy of Holies, and he, as well as Anne, was, though unknown to each other, led into the passage under the temple. There they met, Mary was conceived, the priests awaited them at the entrance of this cave under the temple. All that took place by God's command. I have seen that sometimes, though not often, the Staral were commanded to be led in there. 
Mary entered the temple in her fourth year, and in all things was she distinguished and remarkable. The sister of Lazarus's mother was her teacher and nurse. Her whole manner of acting was so remarkable, so marvelous, that I've seen great roles written by aged priests about her. I think they still lie hidden with other writings. Then came the wonderful manifestations at Joseph's espousals and the blossoming of his rod, the accounts of the three kings and of the shepherds, the presentation of Jesus, Anna's and Simeon's testimony, and the teaching of Jesus at the age of twelve in the temple. But all this the priests and Pharisees noticed not. Their mind was preoccupied by business and court affairs. Because the Holy Family lived in voluntary retirement and poverty, they were forgotten in the crowd. The more enlightened, however, such as Simeon, Anna, and others, knew of them. But when Jesus appeared, and John bore witness to him, the teaching of the Pharisees was so directly contradictory that, even if the signs of his coming had not been forgotten by them, they would certainly not have made them known. Herod's reign and the Roman yoke had so involved them in quarrels and intrigues that their taste for spiritual things was weakened. They did not esteem John's testimony, and they soon forgot him after he was beheaded. They cared little for the teaching and miracles of Jesus, and their ideas of the prophets and the Messiah were altogether erroneous. It is not surprising, therefore, that they so shamefully treated Jesus and put him to death, that they disavowed his resurrection, the wonderful signs that followed it, and even the fulfillment of his prophecy respecting the destruction of Jerusalem. Nor is it to be wondered at that they neglected the signs that heralded his advent, since he had not at the time either taught or wrought miracles. Were the blindness, the obduracy of these men not so incomprehensibly great, could it have lasted even to this day? When I go over the way of the cross in Jerusalem of the present day, I frequently see under a certain ruined building a large vault, or many adjoining vaults, which are partly fallen in and filled with water. Standing in the midst of the water, which rises almost to a level with it, is a table. From the center of the table to the roof of the vault rises a pillar, around which are hung little coffers filled with rolls of writings. Under the table also I saw rolls lying in the water. Perhaps these vaults were once burial places. They lie under Mount Calvary. I think the ruined building is the house wherein Pilate once dwelt, and the treasure will after some time be discovered. Part 13. John Promised to Zachary I saw Zachary conversing with Elizabeth. He was telling her how sad he was, because his turn to offer sacrifice in the temple was drawing near, and how he dreaded the contempt that would there await him on account of his being childless. Zachary went twice a year to the temple. He did not live at Hebron itself, but at a place called Juta, about fifteen minutes' walk from Hebron. The ruins of former buildings still lay between the two places, leading one to fancy that they had once been connected. Many such ruins were to be found on the other side of Hebron, for the place was once as large as Jerusalem. At Hebron dwelt priests of a lower degree, and Juta those of a higher rank. Zachary seemed to be the superior of them all. He and Elizabeth were regarded with extraordinary veneration for the fact of both having descended 
and a direct line from the race of Aaron. I saw Zachary with many people of this locality going to a little property that he owned in the neighborhood of Juta. It consisted of a house, an orchard, and a spring. I saw him there also with the Holy Family at the type of Mary's at the time of Mary's visitation. At the period of which I am speaking, Zachary was teaching the people and praying with them. It seemed to be a preparation for a feast. He told them of his great dejection and of his presentiment that something remarkable was going to happen to him. Again I saw Zachary with the same people going to Jerusalem, where he had to wait four days before his turn to sacrifice came round. Until that time, he prayed in the forepart of the temple. At last, when his turn came, he went into the sanctuary outside the entrance to the Holy of Holies. The roof over the altar of incense was open so that the sky could be seen. The priest offering sacrifice was not visible to those outside. A partition concealed him, but the smoke of the incense could be seen rising. I think Zachary told the other priests that he must be left alone, for I saw them leaving the sanctuary. Zachary went into the Holy of Holies where it was dark. It appeared to me that he took the tables of the law out of the Ark of the Covenant and laid them upon the golden altar of incense. When he kindled the incense, I saw to the right of the altar a light coming down on him and in it a luminous figure. Zachary, frightened, stepped back and sank as if in ecstasy at the right side of the altar. The angel raised him up and spoke some words to him. Zachary replied, Then I saw something like a ladder let down from heaven, and two angels ascending and descending to him. One took something from him, but the other, after Zachary had opened his garment, inserted a shining little body in his side. Zachary had become dumb. I saw him before leaving the Holy of Holies, writing on a little tablet that lay there. This tablet he sent at once to Elizabeth, who likewise had had a vision at that same hour. I saw that the people outside were troubled and anxious on account of Zachary's remaining so long in the sanctuary. They were even moving toward the door to open it when Zachary replaced the tables in the ark and came forth. The crowd questioned him about his long stay in the sanctuary. He tried to answer, but could not. He signified to them by signs that he had become dumb and went away. Zachary was a tall and exceedingly majestic old man.